Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. I'm excited as we will be discussing the topic of disconnect between the expectations of buyers and sellers of translation services. And I have invited my friend Renato Beninato to share his thoughts and perspectives with us. The author of the general theory of the translation company, Renato Beninato, is recognized as the most experienced and accomplished expert in the translation, localization, interpretation, and language services industry. Renato has served on the executive team for some of the localization industry's most prominent companies and founded two of the most prominent market research and consulting companies in the language services space. Renato was the president of ILIA, which stands for the European Language Industry Association, and also an ambassador for Translators Without Borders, a nonprofit organization that provides translations for NGOs. He was also the vice president of Abrates, the Brazilian Translators Association, and a former advisor to TAUS, the Translation Automation User Society. Renato is the author of three books on global business and founded Nimzi to provide insights to investors, analysts, buyers, and suppliers of language services. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk, uh, Renato. How are you? Very good. Good to talk to you, Sultan. You don't need an introduction, Renato, but please tell us what you do these days. What are you up to? Well, um, I'm the chairman of Nimzi and Multilingual Magazine, a company that we start, we bought a year ago. And right. I have removed myself from day-to-day management of these two companies. I have appointed two CEOs that do run the companies on their day-to-day activities, on their um, mundane day-to-day activities. And I have been able to free myself and uh, Tucker Johnson, my business partner, we're more focused on big picture strategy and on actual consulting work, uh, which is the bulk of our revenue at NIMSI. We work with end clients and with LSPs in trying to uh, get them to achieve the goals that they have in the globalization space. So uh, I can tell you, Sultan, it's a lot more fun not to be a manager and to be able to be working on the business and, right, and right. Uh, working with the clients more than spending a lot of time on uh, managerial and internal stuff. So when you did start working uh, here in this industry, Renato, it looked, I'm pretty sure, a lot different than it is today. But uh, give me a, like a chronological sequence of the shift and evolution that you have personally witnessed uh, as to where we are right now. Well, um, I started in the industry early and young. It wasn't an industry then. We talked about translation. It was a local industry. You bought uh, um, Chinese translations, not from China, but from the people that spoke Chinese in your town. Uh, I started working with typewriters and carbon paper and uh, doing... Mm -hmm. Uh, very manual work. Uh, so it's a long way from then to here. And I think that there are, if, if you want to look in terms of innovations as milestones, I think that there, there were three, only three major innovations in our industry. And these were turning points that affected the way we do business. And right. when when you talk about disruptive innovation, usually disruptive innovations are those that come from outside the industry and the three that affected our industry were first the internet with the uh, ability to change the business model that companies had from being local like i said to having a global supply chain the second major innovation was trados or the adoption of translation memory by uh, people which was a, a different way to improve productivity and the third big uh, innovation was machine translation uh, with Google Translate uh, mostly, not Sistran or not the ones that were available in the market that, uh, at the time, but the instant availability of machine translation at scale to anybody in the market. So I think that these three 
shifts uh, were the major uh, changes that affected our, our industry. And I think that we're going to have a new one coming around in the next couple of years with uh, probably 5G and everything that surrounds it. And when I talk about 5G, I'm not talking about the speed of your phone. <laughs> I'm talking about the whole world uh, and, and infrastructure change that is going to happen around that. So would you say that these shifts uh, led us in a positive direction? Were there things that these shifts could have avoided in terms of problems that we had faced? No, I, I, you see, it's 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 there is an element of inevitability, right? Right, right. right. Uh, I I tend to be to look at things from a positive angle, and and I think that if if you think that you you have a choice to look and have regrets, oh, I wish uh, Trados didn't didn't shoot, uh, we kept Trados as a secret for our industry because that way the clients, we could take advantage of the clients and keep the productivity gains for ourselves. So that's the only thing maybe that I I, I would have changed and would have milked a little bit more <laughs> the environment. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, I, I think that those were very positive positive changes. That the, the, the challenge that professionals, humans in general have is to adapt to this change and accept this change as something positive. I, I, I like to make an analogy with uh, back in the 80s when MTV came out, um, the first song that played on MTV was Video Killed the Radio Star. So the expectation at the time was that radio was going to, to disappear because of uh, MTV and music TV and, and that kind of stuff. Right, the reality right. is that video and audio grew in parallel or in, in divergent uh, uh, directions, and we created a much bigger ecosystems with both of them. And this is how I see our industry. Whatever changes we have, there's room for those laggards that want to stay and keep doing the manual stuff, and there's room for those visionaries who want to do crazy stuff that nobody else is doing. Sticking to the same point, arriving to today, what course could our industry have adopted if today was to be different in a better way? Can you envision it being different in a better way at all? Yes, and I think that this has to do, again, going back to human nature and the challenges that we have, is that the main resource that we have in this industry are the translators. By nature, our... Um, supply chain, the, 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 the people that actually work on the language tend not to be business oriented and they tend to be resistant to change. And if we had a more embracing, a culture that is embraces change more uh, than resists change, I think we would have been, we, we could be in a much more relevant space that we are. Keep in mind that we are an industry that is doesn't create anything. We are in a transformation industry. We we work on words that other people wrote. We work on video that other people shot. We, we're always transforming stuff. So we have very little influence in uh, what is going to be translated, what is going to be published, what is going to be uh, considered relevant or not in across languages. So um, if we embraced more um, and we trained our people to think in, in, in big picture and less in terms of cents per word, we might have had a more vibrant and more uh, productive industry than we have today. So our, our, our biggest challenge is usually the pettiness. And, and this is very natural because uh, most of our professionals didn't go to school to become a translator. They are people who come from different backgrounds. You have engineers that speak two languages and become translators. You have uh, artists, you have right, right. Uh, poets, you have all kinds of, of, of uh, backgrounds in our space. And uh, But I know this is, I think, probably something that uh, we could invest in the development and given a little bit more of big picture 
view for our professionals. So Renato, it's interesting you say that we are in the business of transformation. We take words and we transform them. As you said, we don't create anything. We just transform. Where do we add value as an industry? And, and how does that value get captured, get noticed and get improved over time? Okay, it doesn't. <laughs> the answer is that I like to say that translation is only news when it's bad. We are in the type yeah. of business that uh, uh, people uh, only notice. I, I like to say that translation is like toilet paper. It's only important when it's not there. And this is good, right? If we're doing a good job, nobody knows uh, who did the translation. Nobody cares who is the professional working behind that. And by the way, we're not in a unique position. You don't have star accountants. You don't have star janitors. Uh, right. These are all support functions that are that are happening underground. And the only times that we're going to hear about it is when something is done badly, something goes wrong, an accident happens, and, and people try to find blame. And it's like an engineer, right? You only hear about the engineers of a building when the building crumbles, not when it's there, standing there, and doing its function of, of serving as a home to people. So the value, the way that we, and I think that behind your question, there is an element of how do we determine value? How do we establish value? How do we make ourselves relevant to the client? Right. And this is very important when you're trying to sell, when you're trying to grow your business. Of course. And I think that the, the way to position value in that sense is to look at not translation itself and quality and spelling and grammar and things like that. This is boring. This is our stuff, right? It's like talking about the air inside the, the tire in your car. It doesn't have a, a role in itself. Uh, it's important. If your tire is flat, you're not going to go anywhere. The air is there performing a role, but nobody cares about that, right? So this is the, essentially the function of translation. But Translation allows us, and, and I like to say that, don't talk about translation, talk about the things that generate translation. And this is the way that we introduce value. And it's by asking questions to the client, how do you communicate with your customers that don't speak your language? How do you sell to international customers? How can one of your uh, consumers get your product repaired? And the things that, uh, by asking those questions, the client will have to talk about translation. So you don't need to talk about it. You get the client to say, oh, if I don't put air in my car, I can't drive from here to there. Oh, if I don't translate my product, I cannot sell internationally. I cannot support my client internationally. I cannot communicate with my clients internationally. So uh, the way that we create value is not talking about ourselves, not talking about what we do, but talking about the things that are important to the client that we're talking to. So the activities that depend on our work. Absolutely. Our, our focus of conversation, the topic of today's conversation is the disconnect between the expectations of buyers and sellers of translation services. Renato, give me a brief perspective on this. Why does this even exist? It's very simple. It's because we are not a mature business uh, uh, industry and we tend to talk about ourselves. And the disconnect comes from the fact that as professionals in our space, looking at our own belly buttons, we believe that the most important things for clients are quality and price. Or there's some variation sometimes and people think it's price and quality. Wait, that's not what matters to the buyer. And we have extensive research that tells us that the number one thing for all clients is on-time delivery or translating on-time delivery is the word that we use for the service that we provide, but using the, the language of the client is the ability to reduce their time to market. The ability to put every day that a product is late to the market is revenue that is lost. And this is how the client thinks. The second thing that is important to clients is the assurance that their vendor knows their product. And I like to say, I mean, you wouldn't go to an accountant to ask about a pain in your back. Uh, so it's the same thing. Uh, some companies have one or multiple areas of expertise 
and the client wants to know that they're buying their translations from somebody that understands their product, understands their business, understands their industry, right? So these are the two most important things for clients. After that, customer service comes in third, price comes in fourth, quality is seven or eight, because it's not something that they can control. Quality is something that the client expects that you, as a professional provider, will deliver no matter what. So uh, my recommendation to you, don't talk about quality when you're selling. So, uh, Renato, I read your book, The General Theory of the Translation Company. I highly recommend it to anyone listening today. It's it's an amazing manual for running a translation business. In that book, you say our services are critical, but there is not one job title in the client organization that deals with our sales activities. How is that complicating things? Does that create a disconnect in terms of expectations? Well, in sales, we talk about transactional sales, those that uh, you go online or um, translate this birth certificate, it's $100, done. There's no not, not much discussion. It's very transactional, right? Uh, I, I give you the, 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 the document, you give me the translation, I pay, I'm happy. But um, in enterprise sales, we, we have this concept of a complex sale. A complex sale is a sales that, it's a sale that involves multiple stakeholders, multiple people inside the organization. And translation right. is that kind of thing. Um, what I found over the years doing research is that nobody owns uh, translation in the organization. There are multiple points that communicate with the customer that have different responsibilities. There are multiple, you you have, usually I say that you have five departments in, in any company that are traditional buyers of translation. It's the product, legal, um, human resources, technology and marketing, right? And the, the one that has the biggest budget, budget is usually marketing because it's pre-sales. Everything that is uh, uh, related to attracting customers will have more budget than those things that are about just keeping the customers that you have. The hardest job of attracting them was already done, right? right so right. Uh, if you you cannot say that you you are the the vendor of a of a large enterprise and you own their translation work because um there's not a single buyer and there are many people involved in the process and the bigger the project the more people are involved in that process you're going to have financial people involved you're going to have procurement people involved you're going to have uh bosses and and uh, um, different interests that need to be aligned for you to close a big sale so uh, it's a complex sale, and if you if you want to learn how to do complex sales, there are trainings, there are books around this process, and you need to understand that it's not a, a, tra a very different from a tra from transactional work. For you, uh, if you are an individual translator, most of your work is transactional. You is you 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 receive translations from a direct client or you receive translations from a project manager in an LSP and and your relationship is essentially give me work I'll give it back to you give me a check and and that's simple but if you're talking about the enterprise it's a complex sale and and it requires a lot of uh, preparation work uh, uh, competitive analysis and and it, it gets to be to get complicated you brought up a good point there. We tend to focus on quality. I mean, on every conference I go to, everyone that I meet uh, from whatever SLV or MLV, they say we provide the best quality. Um, yeah. But nobody talks the client speak, uh, as you say, or the client's language. And, and that's a big problem in our industry because we tend to use our own terminology, our own language, and that puts us in a disadvantage. Why is that, Renato? It's because we are not uh, trained to sell. We're not trained to talk about it. I mean, these days with billion dollar companies in our space, you do have this this section of the industry that it's very conversant in, in, in client expectations and so on. But the vast majority of the companies, and, and I assume a big chunk of your listeners are people that uh, started the translation business because they spoke a foreign language, because they were translators, because they were a project manager. 
it's not necessary. It's not an industry that is uh, started by uh, venture capitalists and 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 technologists and so on. So we are uh, naturally because of our lack of um, sophistication. Let's put it this way: the lack of business acumen. Yes, yes, and and we all have a little bit here and there, but it can always be improved. But it's something that we acquire by doing. It's not something that we come in we we. It's like if you go into the financial industry, they're only going to hire MBAs from the top schools to be dealing with their biggest clients. We have a lot of people who don't even have college degrees. We have people who come from, uh, especially more recently that it became much, much easier. You have essentially people working from home and, oh, it's I, I can do this. I, I speak three languages. I can be a translator. I can do something. I can monetize. And uh, I think that this is where the disconnect happens. I think that this is uh, what causes us to talk about the stuff that is in front of our noses every day. It's text that needs to be delivered and uh, needs to have a certain quality. And again, what we're trying to do most of the time is avoid complaints from the client because the client usually cannot judge the, the the value of the work that we do. So they rely on third parties and, and it becomes a, a complex process. But uh, quality is subjective uh, and it's very hard to have absolute quality and have absolute perfection. It's uh, based on human judgment and whatever you have human judgment, you have opinion, it's very hard to pin down. So. I would say if you want to talk about quality, don't talk about it in absolute terms, always in relative terms. But for the client, all the client wants is essentially nobody complaining to them <laughs> about right, right. the quality of, of the translation that you did for them. They want to look good to their bosses. They want to have a good night's sleep. They don't want to deal with uh, complaints and criticism and challenges that they have to go back to you and ask for changes or justification. In the past, uh, buyers were traditionally looking at translation services for texts, for translating these texts, general or specialized in nature. What are buyers looking for today and in, in, in the market uh, when, when they deal with uh, translation companies or you know the, the suppliers at large? Well, I, I, I like to say I, I have a 15-year-old son and I tell him that he's probably going to be doing a job uh, when he's an adult and in the, the, the market that it's a right. job that doesn't exist today, right? Um, we're constantly dealing with new types of, of, of translation, new areas of knowledge, words that didn't exist last year. And uh, uh, what, what, what is going to, what is happening today is that there is a demand, there is a constant search. I, 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 I was talking the other day with a friend and I was saying, you know, who is the expert in uh, COVID-19? All of us are experts in COVID-19. It didn't exist last year, right? <laughs> so what clients are um, looking for today, what we see as a growing area of demand, it, it's shifting according to what they're using to communicate with people, so, right? So there is digital marketing, an increase in audio and video content, and a lot of language international tagging of content for a training of artificial intelligence. This is an area that exploded in the last two years. So you have companies like Appen, Lionbridge sold their data annotation business to TELUS right. in Canada for a billion dollars last year. Uh, there is a Pactera, this this company that uh, was owned by a Chinese company, and they they are doing a lot of this preparation work, foundational work to enable. It doesn't involve much translation, but it requires the skill of of a translator to do. So we were involved in a project where LSPs had to scan and annotate one million for each language, one million receipts from restaurants and hotels for uh, an expense management app. So they would scan and they would have to tag, oh, this is the, the name of the company, this is the, the, the price of the services, this is the total, this is the tip, this is the, the 
uh, tax number, all the information that is involved in a receipt needed to be tagged, tagged in different languages, in different markets, in different geographies, with different light conditions, because you might take a picture of your receipt in a dark restaurant uh, or outside in a sunny day, and the, the way that the, the OCR software will capture this information is, is different, and you need to train the the tools to be able to recognize that. So this is an area that we have seen a huge jump in activity in the last couple of couple of years. And voice also things like Siri and uh, uh, Alexa and so on. How did the past two decades change? We see there's more non-traditional types of companies buying translation services. Yes. What is traditional, right? It, there are hundreds of companies. Uh, created every day and today it, i mean it's it's silly to say today because it's been like this for over 20 years uh, the moment you have a web presence the moment you are on google you are global right and and companies start to see the value of localizing much earlier in their existence than they would traditionally e-commerce has created this uh, opportunity for you to sell your product anywhere in the world uh, using these platforms and uh, all you need to do, I mean, the platform will take care of you're in Shopify or something like that. They will take care of your payment. They will take care of your logistics, but you still need to internationalize your content if you want to sell in Germany, in Japan, in Brazil or uh, in Africa. And let's talk about selling of uh, translation services. Um, we all sell language services. We are in that business. Some of us are better than others. How has this art changed over time? Well, uh, it has become more competitive, right? Every As companies grow, and we're in a very fragmented industry with thousands of players and, and competitors, and uh, you need to be to outsell your competition. And I think that the what has changed is the professionalism. There is... Uh, we we are a real industry because we have an ecosystem in our industry for uh, professionalizing the suppliers in the supply chain. So you will have uh, trainers that specialize in sales training in the localization industry. There are four or five of them. You will have uh, market research companies like NIMSI, like Common Sense Advisory. You will have publications like Multilingual, like Slater. You will have... Uh, huge number of uh, channels for you to get information and to be prepared to be more professional in the market. So what has changed is that on the client acquisition side, there is a lot more support and professionalism to help LSPs to open doors and get the opportunities that they want to get. Translation company owners don't seem to study or, or scan the horizon very often. Uh, in your book, you discuss Porter's five forces uh, in, in quite detail. Tell me, how does that cause a problem for their businesses when people are basically on autopilot? Well, uh, one of the fundamentals of business is the ability to reinvent yourself, right? If, if uh, we were still working with typewriters, we would be... Uh, uh, dead, essentially, because uh, we wouldn't be going on with uh, our times. Um, what, what, right. One of the interesting things about Michael Porter's five models is that it gives you a tool to analyze the ecosystem in which you live. And we have a, a, a very interesting, and one of the forces is the rivalry uh, among the players in the industry. Then you have the bargaining power of suppliers. This just means that your translators want to get paid more. The bargaining power of your clients, they want to pay you less. And then you have the uh, um, threat of substitutes, like will machine right. translation kill my business, which it won't. And then you have the threat of new entrants, of competitors. And that's the biggest area of concern for an entrepreneur is the fact that uh, you have no barrier to entry in our industry. All you need is a computer and an internet connection and you're in business. You can sell uh, the same thing that uh, your competitor does just by writing that you do it, right? So right, we right. have... Uh, um, the the of the five forces i think that the one that is the most relevant for our industry is the fact that it's uh, 
there is a very low barrier to entry and then anybody can start a translation. It's not like you, you cannot go overnight and open a bank or a gas station because there is a lot of investment and regulations that are uh, surrounding those kinds of businesses. But you can start a translation now as we're talking. We have, a, I, I was giving a class in Monterey and Tucker, my business partner, created a website in literally five minutes while I was saying, explaining this story. And he created a website called, he bought a domain, I think it's badtranslations.info or, or .group, <laughs> I don't know. He paid 99 cents and created a website and a web presence saying that we do bad translations with pictures and everything. So it's it's it doesn't require any capital investment. It doesn't require any government authorization and you're in business right away. So, so that's the, the 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 force that I think needs to be reckoned with and is the one that has uh, the most significant impact on the five forces in our in our market. This podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human-in-the-loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. Would you say with that specific factor or force, we can we can compete by being uh, very unique so that it's hard for someone to replace that specific organization. So just to give you an example, uh, if someone specializes in um, healthcare or, you know, life sciences in a very specific niche market, then it's very hard for someone to to use the, those low barriers to entry and come in and replace or be a, a viable competitor to that organization. Yeah, specialization is your friend. Generalization is your enemy. You go, the, the more specialized, the more niche, the more dependent your customer is from you. And, and not only in the language aspect and the language expertise, but also in the activities that you do for your client, right? The reality, if you think of it, the, the core competence of our companies is project management. And right. part of project management is managing the expectations and the resources of your customer. And those resources are not only money, but time and uh, technology and things like that. So the more you can solve those non-language problems that your client has, the stickier your relationship becomes and the harder it is for you to be replaced. People don't like to be switching vendors all the time. I, I The analogy that I use is, uh, where you get your hair done. I mean, uh, I, I went to the same barber for 20 years and the first time I had, it was very hard because <laughs> I never knew, I never told my barber how I liked my hair. I just sat down there and he did it. And uh, I would drive, I moved in the city to three different neighborhoods. I would drive half an hour to go to my barber once a month uh, rather than go to the one next door. I probably had one in the corner of my house, but this is habit, this is how, you develop uh, this this long-term relationship with the client. It's creating, solving problems that are not only the linguistic problem. Renato, we solve all of the world's problems with dialogue and communication, or at least we try to. Do you think enough of that happens among the buyers and sellers, sellers of translation services? And what challenges do we experience due to lack of communication or miscommunication? Oh, that's a deep question, Sultan. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, do we talk enough with our customers? Do we learn from them? Do we hear them? We should. Right. And and again, what, what I was saying before, I think that we need to look at it, at it from a, a bigger frame than just the language frame. It's a right. set of things that establish that relationship. Right. One of the things that I like to tell to, to LSPs and translators also is to realize that we are not translating for the person that is giving us the translation job. Right. That translation is going to be read by somebody else. It's going to be consumed by somebody else. So the way that you communicate and develop develop this relationship with your client is by thinking about their customer. It's talking about your client's client, not about you and your client's relationship, but your client's client. And that client's client can be a boss, that client's client can be a consumer, that client's client can be another supplier, and you are a mediator. And, and the word that they use in Europe, they, they don't talk about translation as much, and I think that they're uh, trying to, uh, to change the concept to language mediation, right? So 
playing this role of a mediator is almost the role of a diplomat. And uh, this is the way that you create value is by understanding the purpose of what you do. Why am I doing this? For whom am I doing this? How is it going to be used? And helping your customer understand that. The more you, you create that link, the more value you create and the less dependent your conversation is going to be on price per word. It's going to, you, you move your conversation from price to value. You move your conversation from cents to millions of dollars, right? It's, right. it's what is the impact of what you're doing to the person who is buying that job from you? It's ironic that in, in the industry that is trying to solve global communication problems, we do that. There are basic communication problems like we don't talk to our clients or in, in their own language. What does that say about our, our industry in general? Do you see that as lack of business uh, expertise, uh, education? What is it? What does it tell you in general about this industry? It, it's very hard to speak in generic terms for this because we're such a diverse universe. Right. Uh, we We have all kinds of people. Here we are, you in Canada, right. me in the United States. We're having this... Uh, a conversation about global business and we come from the most distant backgrounds and yet we still have something in common, right? That's but right. Yeah. it's very, very hard to get uh, um, to talk in terms of uniform uh, practices and so on. There's some people in our industry that are very good at some aspect of the business the, the, the craftsmanship that is involved in delivering a good service. And there are other people who don't care about it. They are focused on software and they are trying to find efficiencies and automations and integrations, and uh, uh, which is a completely different way of looking at it. So I think that the, the, the right way for, for us to look at, at our business is to embrace the diversity and the differences more than the standard things that we have. This is what makes our business vibrant. This is what makes our business creative. Uh, there is this saying in the uh, human resources world that a diverse team is smarter than a smart team. If you get people with the different backgrounds in the room to solve a problem, you're going to have multiple responses coming from different areas of ideas and angles. And uh, on the other side, if you have a bunch of people that have degrees from Harvard, they all going, they're all going to look at the problem from the same angle and the same way, and they're going to come with uh, a very standardized responses or what, what they call groupthink, right? Uh, right. It's, it's everybody thinks that they respect the other people for being smart, and they don't ask the stupid questions that create uh, uh, insights and uh, new ideas. So uh, uh, I, I, I think that what some see as a challenge in our business, I like to see as uh, what makes it valuable, what makes it interesting, what makes it fun. I'm going to ask you, Renato, now about the evolving role of the business development or salesperson and, and translation. In the past, with some knowledge of this business, uh, you could sell the service. What do you need to know today and uh, be aware about clients before you could make a confident offer to them? There was one sentence. There is a, this author. He wrote a book called The Sales Bible, the little red book of uh, sales. And he has a, a bunch of books. His name is Jeff, Jeffrey Gittimer. And one of the things that I read from him a long, long time ago is essentially what changed my perception about sales. He said that people don't like to be sold to, but they love to buy. What this means is it doesn't matter what you're selling. What matters is what the client is buying. So you right. don't need to be an expert in uh, translation, in translation memory, in TMS systems, in integrations, in quality control and uh, spell checking. And none of that from a sales perspective is relevant. What you really need to understand is the purpose of that translation for your client. How are you going to make your client look good? 
So uh, I like to quote this scene from my big fat Greek wedding, the movie that uh, the woman says, uh, well, your father says that he's the head of the family. He's right. He's the head of the family. But the mother is the neck, turns the head right. in any direction. Right. We need to be the neck. We need to be turning the, direct, the head of our clients. And if we want to sell, we need to be able to make the client believe that they are buying your service instead of us telling them that they that you are selling and what they need and their problem is these are these are very used card salesman approaches the consultative sales approach which is the one that is mostly adopted in our industry is the one that you seek to listen rather than to speak you seek to understand rather to then explain so the successful business developer is the one that can analyze the customer needs, understand their customer needs, and create an environment where the client is comfortable buying. There is that huge debate and push for becoming specialists. We talked about this earlier and understanding customer needs more deeply to respond to. Why LSPs in our industry remain passive in pursuing specialization? I think that th there is an element of opportunity. We, we are not a, a, a type of business that receives funding that you can invest and do trial and error and go for uh, a strategy for years maybe uh, until you realize that maybe that's not the best one and you need to move to another segment. Our businesses are driven by whatever we can get, right? And, right. and so that, that creates that tension between uh, being a generalist and being a specialist. In my experience working as a consultant with LSPs all over the world, what I see as a pattern is that most companies either start with a, a customer relationship, a strong customer relationship, friends, family, uh, uh, luck, <laughs> and 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 they they go for clients that are similar to that client. It could be in an industry, it could be a a role inside an organization, and so on. And this is the path that they get to specialization. Um, right. What happens over time as you need to grow? Sometimes it's hard to have this. Uh, it's almost a matrix between geography and specialization. Right. So as you need, as you grow, you outgrow your 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 small market and you start going to expand geographically. And by nature, you start going into two or three different segments. And uh, this is usually what I see companies become. They specialize in um, uh, regulated industries. So they'll do financial and healthcare, or they specialize in uh, automotive, and then they expand to, I don't know, tractors and aerospace or right. something like that. So the the way that this happens is more organic than strategically planned. As you mature, as your company reaches a certain milestone when it stops growing, and you usually, I say that we usually talk to our, our clients are usually companies that get stuck. And this happens after they've been in business for 10 years, they don't know how to go forward, or when they reached the founder's quota that will vary by country, but it's somewhere between one and a half and $5 million in revenue. And they tend to get stuck and they don't know how to, to move forward from there. And this is the time where you have a strategic conversation and then you can talk about, okay, I'm going to pursue a specific market, I'm going to get specialization, I'm going to get the right resources. And, and this is very often where Nimzi comes in talking to LSPs is is helping them get unstuck, move from that uh, mm -hmm. place of of complacency of comfort to a more challenging environment. There is no sales conversation, Renato, that is complete without a debate on on pricing models. We've heard mm -hmm. this in every single conference. How do we see that changing in the client side? And what is your observation from the LSPs? I'm, I'm a little biased on this side, Sultan, because pricing is just a convenient way of uh, measuring performance, right? Right. Uh, price per word is the standard that we have in the industry. You will have price per page here and there. You'll have hourly rates and so on. But pricing is... Um, a sterile conversation because you can make whatever you want. You can create a standard pricing. You can create uh, 
official price saying you can do whatever you, you want. But uh, the reality is that a price is the result of the negotiation between uh, the client and the LSP, and the LSP will accept the price that is uh, competitive for them. So there is a, a supply and demand element in the marketplace that determines what is price. However, I don't like to talk about price. And if, if uh, you are successful in growing your business, you will have learned that uh, the, the best conversation is a conversation about value. It's and, and not value, not necessarily monetary value. It's the value of the experience. It's the value of the uh, outcome. It's the value of the uh, uh, relationship that you build with your customer. And the customer will be uh, willing to overlook uh, things like uh, the pricing itself. Uh, there, there is a saying in sales that people make emotional decisions for rational reasons, right? right. So <laughs> the decisions are always going to be emotional and you're going to discount, oh, this is like the, the classic case of going to a supermarket or to a pharmacy and buying the store brand or buying the, the commercial brand. Most people will buy the commercial brand, even though the store brand for your detergent, for your aspirin is manufactured by the same company that uh, but the prices are different so price is is it's not it's a sterile conversation because uh, um, you can plan as much as you want at the end of the day you're going to negotiate you're going to accept terms and so on i was reviewing we we help clients with rfps and frequently i i have a chance to see uh pricing and usually what clients do in very large RFPs, they dismiss the ones that are too cheap. They dismiss the ones that are too expensive. They negotiate with the ones that are in the middle and they will put price in, in the formula, but they're looking for the best value, not for the best price. And if we understand how the mind of a buyer works, what are the criteria? And this is one of the things that a good salesperson will do is to when you are in a competitive environment with an RFP is to ask what are the selection criteria that are going to be applied for the decision making. So uh, we went to this RFP that we just finished re recently and the, the pricing varied from 232,000 to $1.2 million for the same service. And we had prices in the middle. So the, the, the most expensive and the cheapest were removed and they started working at, uh, and, and they had two teams to select. Not every decision ma is made like this, but this is in a complex environment. You had uh, a team evaluating the technical proposal and after the choices were made and ranked in the technical proposal, they went and they opened the financial proposal and they looked at the pricing. And then they had scores and pricing uh, was 30% of the value of the proposal. And the understanding of the business was 10% and they had different uh, categories and ranks for it. And at the end, you get somebody that the prices is there in the middle, is competitive, but it's the whole proposal that matters. So it, it's a complex conversation. It's not easy to cover really. And I have a hard time being uh, blunt to say, oh, this is the rule, this is how it works. Because in my experience, there is a lot of fluidity and a lot of uh, um, variables that come into play when you're talking about pricing. Renato, today's buyer, uh, I'm sure you have done lots of studies on this. Today's buyers are a lot more educated within our industry. They are, or this persona is aware of technology and has a wider selection of LSPs. What should language company executives know and think about when developing their business strategies? Okay, the, 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 the best approach that I've seen and that I like from a technology perspective, if you don't want to be reinventing the wheel, and uh, creating your own technology, which many companies do all the time. We have a mature industry and we have published the NIMSI, the NIMSI Technology Atlas. There is one coming in July uh, of, of 2021, which has over 700 uh, software solutions for problems related to the language industry, right? So right. Th there's nothing 
that has not been invented that you cannot buy in the market. Your best bet is to be technology agnostic and to be able to work with any technology requirement that your client has. What you want the technology to do, uh, in the past, early on, we wanted to create portals and use the ATM approach, right? The ATM, where you go to get your cash, uh, is a very good technology for the bank because the bank doesn't need people, it doesn't need a, a, a store, doesn't need a, a branch like it used to, and you don't need to go there, walk up to a cashier, write a check, get the, the money that you need. There is a machine that is there 24-7, and it's doing the work that a person would do internally at a, at a bank. Th this ATM model is very convenient for the bank, and we live with it, right? And there are many people that want to do that. They want to put the client to work for us, for the LSP. If that is your goal, is if, if your goal is to optimize your internal processes and improve your productivity, you have a losing proposition uh, because nobody wants to have additional work. But if it is the other way around, if you want to create an environment uh, for the client to understand, to, to integrate, to do things like they used to do, they're used to doing, and you just press a button and it goes and translates, then you are uh, facilitating, making it easy and working within the, the the environment that the client has. So I think that uh, the, the best approach and what we need to think about is always be customer centric, always thinking about right. how can we make our client's life easier and when they have uh, their their goals accomplished, uh, you're successful and you're you're taking money to the bank. So the way that we we look at uh, technology is uh, in the sales process. We need to look at it as part of uh, the client experience and not as part of our experience. We will adapt. We do our own automations, improvements, and so on. But we we shouldn't try to transfer it to the customer. So the concept of the portal is very convenient for us. The portal is the ATM. That's not the right. best. For us to work. Uh, we talked about uh, the product of our service that we're selling, and and the question is again, what are we selling? You mentioned it's definitely not translation, and that's what you argue in your book as well. How can we quantify and justify that for the buyers? How do we map what we sell in terms of value to their purchasing cycle, to their psychology, and to their business goals? Yes, well, what you're, what we're selling is project management, right? We're selling right. Uh, uh, the, the the resources, managing time. Uh, human resources, technology, uh, money, and and uh, uh, requirements. This is this is what we sell. We sell a good night's sleep, getting their bosses off their backs. These are the things that we sell. The way we quantify is by speaking the the language of the client. How much time will we save to you? How much effort, how much less effort will you have to make to get your product to the market, to get your uh, boss happy, to get your colleagues uh, satisfied by receiving the things that they ask you to do for them? So the the, the value is very free, very frequently uh, the value is intangible and not tangible, and you're and this is how you avoid the conversation about prices, understanding this uh, non-monetary, non-language actions that are involved in the process, in the relationship with the LSP. And this is how you show value. This is how you become irreplaceable. This is how you become part of the, the solution and not part of the problem. How do we improve relationships between these two sides? I mean, client and, and, and supplier. How do we build bridges, better understanding in a collaborative environment where both the buyers can have their needs met and the sellers thrive in that environment? It's the relationship. It's the partnership concept, which, which I, I just described. And, and the way to improve is the way it's to understand their business more sometimes than they understand it themselves. I like it. I like to say when you start a conversation with a potential buyer, tell them something that they don't know about their competitors. 
tell them something that they don't know about their own company and then tell them something that they don't know about you. The way we improve it is by talking less about us and more about them. I like to say, if you if you want to engage or, with a beautiful woman, praise her shoes, notice right. her jewelry, and don't talk about how great you are, what beautiful your car is, etc., etc. It's always talking about them, the, the, the other, uh, I like to say one of the exercises that I tell people is look at your website and see how many you's you have compared to how many we's you have, right? right. And you will see that uh, a lot of the LSPs, you, you just go in and we do this about us, our services, our proposition. Mm, talk about their needs, their business, their activities and, and how you can make life easier for them. It's like dating. You need to impress them uh, and then they will ask questions about you. You want that the reaction that you want to elicit is your client to say, tell me more and ask, they ask you to tell them about you. Tell me about your predictions for the next 24 months, Renato. Where do you see this industry going in the light of the current environmental and economic conditions? Well, I think that we, we, we are a growth industry. Uh, I, I like to say, I've been saying this for many years, that we are in an industry that is impervious to crisis. We've never had, uh, in my almost 40 years in this business, I've never seen a depression in our business, not even a recession. You may have a slow month here, you may have about a about couple of months, a few companies in certain segments, like in COVID, you had people struggling in the travel industry uh, for a good period of time. But as a whole, the industry grows all the time. So where do I see our industry in the next 24 months? I'll see our industry bigger by about another 15%. Um, we're going to be doing translations in segments that, so uh, as we speak here, Microsoft is announcing Windows 11. There's going to be a, a lot of change and adaptation and things that are going to happen, software that is going to be uh, uh, changed and improved and adapted to run in Windows 11. So that's uh, a change. We are in an environment where there is a lot of uh, focus on uh, clean energy, electric cars. You see a lot more electric cars than traditional combustion engine cars in on the streets. This drives change. Uh, there's software that needs to be developed to run these cars and uh, repair these cars and so on. So uh, all these macro changes that happen in the industry, because we are a transformation business, because we're not creating anything, our growth is in the gro in the growth areas of the economies in our countries, in our regions, in our world. So uh, I see our business growing. And, and the other thing is that the, the existing business I think that one of the insights that I had in over the years is that I, I gave the example of video killed the radio star. We, we, there's very little replacement. People were afraid that machine translation was going to reduce human translation. It didn't. There's more human translation than there ever was. And machine translation is doing a lot of translation that humans wouldn't be able to be doing, right? Uh, I, right. I see Facebook posts of friends who posted something in Latvian. I would never uh, hire a translator to do a translation from Latvian to English or to Portuguese for me. Uh, but I consume the machine translation uh, daily for little things like that. So machine translation replaces a lot of translations that would never be done. And it allows us, the humans, to be creating value for our customers if we don't fight it and we embrace this change and we use it to make ourselves more productive. So I see a bright future, I see a growth future, and I think that we're going to have fantastic uh, uh, 24 months, you ask. Uh, so right. we'll, we'll have uh, a great time and in, in two years, uh, we will be struggling trying to find more translators to do the jobs that we need. Couldn't agree with you more there, Renato. Now, as we reach the end of this uh, conversation, I want to ask you as to what your thoughts and advice are for the LSPs and executives in our industry. Take risk. I think that the advice is um, embrace change and uh, try new things. Uh, we are entrepreneurs. We are 
business owners. We are people who drive the economy, right? If you are status quo, if you're doing what you always did, you're going to have the same results. Uh, be bold, go outside, do things different, fail, uh, but take the step, take risks, and uh, that's the way that you're going to advance professionally as an individual and as a business, uh, you're going to see growth. is by taking risks. I had a ton of fun speaking to you, Renato, as an industry expert and someone who has an incredible amount of experience. You have shared great advice and leaders in our industry aspiring to improve their businesses and make this a better place for all of us. Uh, we'll use your advice and apply that to your businesses. Thank you for your time and I look forward to speaking with you in a future episode. Sultan, it's a pleasure and it's good to talk to you again. Okay, it's time for my roundup of the interview and my analysis as to what has been discussed. Renato is always full of information and presents a fresh and interesting perspective. He has his eyes on the movement of every dial in our industry. I agree with him that the disconnect between buyers and sellers of translation services has created disparities that affect business. I think as language company owners, we need to take our time to learn more about the impact of our work on their final products and their clients. As Renato said, we should be speaking our clients' language, focus more on them and talk less about our services. I also think that our industry is ripe with opportunities in the new and emerging types of services. I echo Renato's advice for language company owners to take risk, be bold, get out of your comfort zone and do something exciting. There you have it. Renato Benanato was my guest in this episode of the Translation Company Talk. He is a man with great experiences and insights, and he's not shy to talk about our industry. If you're able to learn at least one thing from our conversation today, my goal of educating our entrepreneurs has been accomplished. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite platform, and give us a five-star ratings where you're listening Make sure to send your comments and feedback. It's important for this podcast. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.